I hope you're already turning with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the verses leading up to it, the Apostle Paul has already finished explaining why he, as a minister of the gospel, does not lose hope. In our passage this morning, he goes into greater detail about how exactly, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Those are powerful words in an age with the coronavirus. We have these twin realities, these twin fears, the fear of sickness and death on the one hand, and we have the fear of loss of livelihood in this world on the other hand. Though our outer self is wasting away, Paul reminds us, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, the world is trying to address this fear as well. The world is making every effort on the one hand to fix the situation through a variety of remedies, of social distancing, perhaps federal aid packages and other means. On the other hand, some are simply repeating over and over that it will all be okay, right? It'll all be okay. It's all going to to blow over. I was recently made aware of a social media post in which a group of celebrities got together digitally and they sang the song Imagine, the song Imagine by John Lennon. It begins with these words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. But what if today is a day in which we're stuck in quarantine in a home, apart from friends, without a job to provide for tomorrow? What's it like to live for that day? Worse yet, what if today is stuck, restricted outside of a hospital with a loved one inside suffering from coronavirus? But that's not the worst of it. In another response by another celebrity, he wrote, I'm not going to imagine there's no heaven. Jesus gives hope. Government can't give people a heart change or hope. You know, I'm listening to that song. I'm listening for comfort, and I'm not finding any. I'm only finding godless irrational sentimentality. Perhaps there's a significant warning for us in there. Perhaps, if this is the sort of comfort that Hollywood has to offer, perhaps we ought to spend a good deal more time within our households in the Word and in prayer, encouraging one another in the faith rather than binging Netflix and other entertainment. The fact is, this morning's passage holds out a hope for us that is neither weak, nor passing away, nor sentimental. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to give us faith to see Jesus and the hope that we actually have in Him as His redeemed people. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that your word, as we turn, as we give attention, would work within us, and that your spirit would confirm your word as your presence as a guarantee of what we have in hope in Christ that is described to us and affirmed to us by your word this morning. We pray that you would work in the midst of your church, that you would work transformation, that you would work encouragement, that you would work hope, and that you would compel us to that which is pleasing in your sight today. Thank you, Lord. We trust you that you would work by your word and spirit in these moments this morning, even in this dispersed way that we are. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at our passage this morning, it begins with these words, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We have a tent that is an earthly home, and it is destroyed. And we have a building, which is a house, which is eternal in the heavens. Now, this passage gives us two assurances. The first assurance is the assurance of our mortality. Our earthly home will be destroyed. I believe that one of the greatest wisdoms that comes with age is this, that I have a growing confidence that the body is weak, It is passing away that I am mortal. Friends, that is something that from the word and from life experience and wisdom, we can be assured. But we're also given this assurance that we who are in Christ have assurance of eternal provision. Our heavenly provision isn't just another home. What we have on earth is a tent. What we have in heaven is a building, and it is eternal, not made with human hands. Of these two things we can be assured. We are mortal, and for those who are in Christ, we have an eternal provision. Now, it's interesting, the words that are used to communicate this. In the passage, it says, for we know we have. We know and we have. And what's powerful about those words is those are words about the present reality. Presently, we know. Presently, we have what is promised to us in this passage of an eternal provision, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, is what we have presently by a grace-given right. We have a deed to a building in heaven. It is our eternal provision to cover the destruction of what we have lost on earth. We hold the title to that building. It's ours today. We just have not yet arrived to move in. Sure, permanent, even if it is not immediately enjoyed, it is our sure and present 
possession. So what is it? Well, the context is clear. On the earth, God has provided our bodies, but our body, our earthly tent, our earthly home, is mortal. It will be destroyed. But God has provided for the redeemed a new body, eternal, undying, in heaven. The believer who dies in Christ is not unclothed, as Paul puts it, neither just a, a dead body on the gr- in the ground, nor a disembodied spirit floating in some sort of ethereal realm. The believer has been provided by an act of grace, an eternal body in heaven that will not waste away like our mortal body. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the good news of Christ, that we have a grace given right and deed. All of what we speak today that belongs to the believer in Jesus Christ is grace. It is not what we have earned. The scriptures are clear. The wages, the earning, what is owed to us, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. For all who trust in the name of Jesus, we relinquish the death that is our wage, and we say, Jesus, by grace you can have it. What is ours by our right? We relinquish by the grace of God. And what we take up, we take up the life that is in Christ, that is Christ to give, and it is ours by grace alone. This is the gospel, the way in which we shed our mortality and its wage, and we receive grace, a house, a provision in the heavenly places by grace. Now, in verse 2, it says, in this tent we groan. We groan for this, longing to be put to put on our heavenly dwelling, longing, groaning. And today, in the world, the groan is real. We can hear it in every news article, in every social media post. Some groan in anger, some groan in fear, some groan in denial. But the focus of all our groaning is the weakness of our mortal flesh. But there ought to be a different note of groaning among the church this morning. We groan. But the focus of our groaning is as we long for our eternal home. Is that the nature of our groaning this morning? Our groaning is not for more of today. Our groaning is not that we are living for today. We groan toward life, a life that is secured for us in the heavenly places. We trust that the, we trust the Lord and we trust that he has given us each breath. As we breathe it, we seek to please the Lord with the life that he provides to our mortal bodies. 
But when he takes that breath away, we lose nothing. No, when we have been groaning for the day that the Lord would see fit to take away our breath, he gives eternal life. So what assurance do we have of this? What hope do we have? Well, we have the guarantee of the promise of God for us in verse 5. Look at it with me. Verse 5 says, He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We have the Spirit of God, the one who has prepared for us this eternal house has given to us himself as a guarantee. He who is the giver of all good things, present with us, even as we long to be present in the heavenly places with him, he has come to us. Commentator Philip Hughes, the earnest of the Spirit is not a mere static deposit, but the active, vivifying, life-giving operation of the Holy Spirit within the believer, assuring him that the same principle of power which effected the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is also present and at work within him, preparing his mortal body for the consummation of his redemption in the glorification of his body. As we experience the Holy Spirit, we experience him by his gifts. We experience him by the fruit of this Spirit being birthed and born in our lives, by our experience of his transforming work within us by the word. We receive a foretaste, a guarantee that he is bringing the grace of Jesus to its eternal completion. Now, the passage moves on in the next paragraph to an astounding statement. Really, it's a result of what Paul has shared with the people thus far. In verse 6, it begins with these words, So we are always of good courage. Now, this is one of the most precious marks of the person who is in Jesus Christ, who has faith in his redemption, good courage. In the face of hardship, weakness, suffering, even in the death of our mortal bodies, good courage. The true believer ought to be the most courageous fearless, divinely unstoppable human being on planet Earth. As a quote that is attributed to George Whitfield goes, we are immortal until our work on Earth is done. If it is true that one day our earthly tent, and it's just a tent, it will be destroyed we have a surpassing glory awaiting us. We have a provision in the heavenly places, not just a tent, but a house in our Lord. Unstoppable, good courage. 
John Calvin, he says this of this passage. Let us, however, consider this settled, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. If there is any fear in death, it must only be the fear of lost opportunity in this world, in this life, to walk pleasing to the Lord and to make his gospel known. And even then, we trust the Lord that he knows the day. He knows the hour that we must breathe our last and that he is the source of all good labor among the deeds of men. And when our labor would cease, it is good. I want to offer to us three passages in Scripture that ought to, as John Calvin tells us, to tutor us in the way of Christ, that would teach us our confidence in him to long for his appearing. Three passages, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared. This is true. This is the grace of God at work in the person and work of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign. The grace of God has appeared. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is what it looks like to be in the mortal body, that is to be trained by the gospel to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. What is the disposition of that labor? Waiting for our blessed hope. That's what we're really doing. The disposition of all of our labor is the disposition of waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look at the logic of the passage. Grace appeared to train us now to wait for hope, which is the appearing of Jesus. The believer has a singular hope, and it's not our daily labor. It's not the persistence of our life in this earthly tent. Our hope and our daily waiting is to see Jesus. The same idea is held out for us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to whom? To all who have loved his appearing. What do we love? What is our hope? What is the disposition of our desire? What is our affection? Is it for the appearing of Jesus Christ? We are a people of a singular love and hope, and it must be the appearing, the sight of our Redeemer Jesus. As Jesus himself said in our third passage, Luke chapter 21, verse 28, now when these things begin to take place, he's speaking about his return. When it, when it becomes apparent that Jesus is returning for his people, listen to what he says, straighten up, raise your heads, 
because your redemption is drawing near. Raise up, straighten up, raise your heads. Beautiful words for weak and mortal bodies. Why? Because you're about to see Jesus. That ought to bring us courage, strength. As the the letter of 2 Corinthians begins, it is a letter of encouragement to place within us good courage. This is the people that that we are by means of the grace of the gospel. Now, what I want us to do before we move on is I want us to see the logic of the courage. We have two options. Look at it with me. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is the logic of, of courage. There are two options and two options only. To be home in the body and away from the Lord, or to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The logic is simple. It's the same as Paul's logic in Philippians. Consider Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 24. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. He wants to live his life in the mortal flesh with full courage in Christ, whether by life or by death. For, here's the logic, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is to have a life consumed by hope in Christ and ministry of the good news of his grace. But to die is to see him. As he continues, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account for the sake of the church, for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel, he continues on. He presses on with good courage. When we think of life and death, life on earth versus death and heaven, we tend to think of it as a sort of consolation prize. You know, you you get kicked off the game show. You don't get to play any longer, but at least you get to go to heaven. I mean, it's sort of the lesser of two evils, right? Paul doesn't seem to think of it like that at all. This is not the logic of the gospel. He says he's hard-pressed to choose between two glorious realities. To use up his life and breath in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, or to die and go to the presence of the Lord for whom he has given up his life to please. These are two glorious options. And so he is resolved the truth that the Lord is his life to live by faith. And he is resolved to trust the Lord with his death in which he will see him with sight. 
That's why verse 7 is so important. Look at it with me. For we walk. Our life is lived. Our daily steps are taken by faith, not by sight. Sight. That's our goal. That's where we're going. A sight of Jesus is our glorious end. To see Jesus, that is our eternal hope. But it must also be until the day that we shed this mortal flesh, that this tent is removed and we put on the eternal dwelling. It must be our daily labor to see him by faith. To see Jesus with the eyes of faith is the greatest work of sanctification. Consider just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. He says those astoundingly beautiful words. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It's the same idea. We walk by faith, not by sight. The Apostle Peter picked up the same idea in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8-9 through 9, to a people who are in the midst of suffering. He writes these words, Though we have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What we have is the image of a people who are looking into the future by faith and pulling the surety of that reality into their present hope so that they can rejoice with joy in the midst of suffering. The day will come when we will not have to fight by faith to see Jesus. That's good news. This ought to therefore invigorate our fight today to see him by faith. The call is simple and clear for us. Are you, are we actively, presently, daily fighting? to look to Jesus. Not only have you looked to Jesus for forgiveness of sin, the salvation of your soul, and friends, if you are watching this and you hear of the hope that is in Christ, know it is only in Christ by grace through faith. The call to you is to believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, to cry out to him for the salvation of your soul. But that is only the beginning of our looking to him. Are you looking to him today as he is the hope and joy and satisfaction of your soul today? You know, we are searching. You and I are both. We're, we're looking through the news we're looking through headlines. We're looking for information about what in the world is going to happen tomorrow. And we do this so we can try to understand what's happening in our life today. Do we have any assurance 
that as we look to Jesus, we look to him, by doing so, we are truly looking to see what is going to happen next. Do we really believe that the return of Jesus is the next great event in world history? Do we believe this? And so we hope. We hope in the pages of Scripture, like a world, we open them. Like a world that looks to the news in a time of pandemic, we open the Scriptures and we search, looking for some glimpse of what is to come. That's what it looks like to search earnestly, to engage our faith in a search for the reality of the hope that we have in Jesus. Now, Paul could have just left it there, but he continues. He gives us verse 9, and we ought to pay attention. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The first and greatest reality that we have to remember about judgment for the redeemed, when we hear the word judgment seat, when we remember the reality that Jesus Christ is judge, we must immediately remember what is true for us in Romans 8 Verse 1, glorious hope and reality. There is, therefore now, no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Simple, profound, glorious reality for a people who are confident that Jesus is judge. There is, therefore now, no Condemnation. Friends, that means there is no anger. There is no wrath that remains. It has been used up on Christ, on the cross, in our place. There is no remaining penalty to be paid. There is no justice to be meted out. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the believer, as Hebrews 4 tells us, The judgment seat of Christ is nothing less than the throne of grace. That is all that remains because of the great gospel of Jesus for the believer in Christ as we approach his judgment seat. We're told that the judgment is for what is done in the body. But that ties back to what Paul has just said in verse 9. We make it our aim to please him, not to pacify him, not to mitigate against judgment, not to earn some great salvation. We aim to please him who has loved us well. Our in-the-body time, our time in the earthly tent is lived in light of judgment. We must all appear Jesus, But Jesus often speaks, when he speaks of this judgment, of great reward from the Father who sees in secret. We lived as a people who are already redeemed in light of the hope of judgment, that he's just, that he's redeemer. 
All that Paul does, the way that he does it, is compelled by two simultaneous realities. He will see the Lord face to face. He is assured and he assures us of this. And the Lord sits on his throne of judgment in which all of the condemnation that is due to us has been used up on Christ. There are many words that come to mind when we think of seeing Jesus face to face on his throne of grace, glory, peace, hope, rest, reward. It is the hope of the believer that the Lord sees what is in secret. But it's also the believer's hope that the Lord sees the believer as one who has been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so, knowing that we will be called before the throne of our God, we labor as a people to please him. Brothers and sisters, we live in what is one of the most unique moments that probably any of us will see in our lives on this earth. But it is also a tremendous opportunity and a wake-up call for the believer. Have you ever noticed in paintings in the Renaissance that there's often a skull on the desk or portrayed somewhere in the portrait? In the Renaissance, the presence of a skull was to be a constant reminder of the reality of our mortality. Today, we make every attempt not to remember our mortality. We make up euphemisms for death, like passing away or moving on or celebration of life. We nip and we tuck the skin to convince ourselves and others around us that death is still far off. I'm vibrant, I'm young, all will be okay. We sing, imagine all the people living for today. We have little phrases for it. YOLO, you only live once, live it to the full. But in the news the past few weeks, the word mortality is one of the most used words as we speak of mortality rates and flattening the curve. And we mourn. We cry out to the Lord for help, particularly. We mourn for all those who shed the earthly tent, but have no assurance in Christ of a house eternal in the heavens. We cry, Lord, tarry just a little longer. Have mercy. Grant us opportunity to make your name known among the lost before it is too late for them. You see, this scripture is in this moment a wake-up call for us in two ways. Let us, we who know we will shed this tent, know we have a house in the heavens, and know that we will see our Savior face to face, even as he sits in judgment. Let us be found laboring for what is pleasing to the Lord. The day will come when we will shed this flesh. We'll see the Lord face to face. May we be found on that day singing his praise and making known his good news. And secondly, let us long. 
let us increase our longing through meditation and prayer and the work of the Spirit in us to long to see Jesus. May our daily labor, may our daily labor be not only gospel ministry, but also the practice of gospel hope. Let us labor to see Jesus with the eyes of faith. Labor to see Jesus. Let us seek him that he would be found. May the orientation of our prayer be, Lord, let me see you by faith. Show me the hope and assurance that I have to know you and that one day I will see you face to face. These days, may that be our grace-filled, faithful labor. Give me, show me Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this word gives us a glimpse. This word increases our hope. This word is given to us for our encouragement, that we would be emboldened in the faith. Lord, we pray that you would work this in your church this morning as we are dispersed, watching on chairs and couches and sitting together with a word open before us that we would not quickly close them to move on from this place, that we would not say, well, the sermon's done, let's move on and just get on with the day without celebrating, that we would not respond with songs that embolden our sight of you, that that could become something that we carry on with us in our day to be reminded that we have Jesus and eternal hope in you. Embolden, encourage your people today. And may what we do, may our daily labor to see you and to make you known be pleasing in your sight so that when we see you on your throne, we would rejoice as a people not condemned. And we would long for the reward that you have gathered up for your people by grace. Thank you, Lord. We have confidence that you will do this in your church and you would spread that good news in our neighborhoods these days. Amen. It's our practice in this time in our service that we would continue to remember the gospel, the hope that we have in Christ, and we do so in communion. In these moments, we celebrate and we remember. Now, typically, we're gathered all together in one place, and the elders have have prepared a way for us to gather in this way, and the church sets the table that we would come and to remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin until the day that he comes for his church. We're unable to gather this morning and there is a lot that is different about the way that we gather in this dispersed way. The elders would ask you to participate with us in a different way, that we would participate spiritually that this is not our normal way of gathering. We believe that we are to do this bodily together, that we would do this within the context of the gathered church, and that we would do this 
in a very physical, gathered way in the presence of worship and celebration and the remembering of the gospel. But we ask that you would this morning simply remember that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are together participants in the gospel, participants in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ by his broken body and shed blood. So will you remember with me simply by remembering the words of Scripture. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And may this remembering, may this celebration of what the Lord has provided for his people, be a means by which he increases our longing for that day when he comes. Amen.